0: So last week we finished chapter 6 and spent a long time talking about horses and cavalry and chariots and stuff like that. So what we'll do tonight is we'll go on to chapter 7, and chapters 7 and 8 are sort of what I would call more standard prophetic fare, stuff like what you would read in Isaiah or anything like that, where you have a prophecy given to local group of folks. So we start off in chapter 7. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. This is almost two years after the first series of visions. Things have been quiet for almost two years, and then we get another vision. And I think I mentioned this last time. If I didn't, I'll do it now. The idea that These prophecies are dated according to the reign of King Darius, who is a Persian, is an indicator, if you will, that Israel doesn't have its own dynasty functioning. The throne of David is empty, so you can't date things from the first year or the third year of the reign of King Solomon or something like that. The only stable date that you've got at this point is a Gentile king. That's a consequence of being in exile and having the throne in Jerusalem itself empty. So Zerubbabel is just a governor. He is not a king. And in fact, I think we talked last time, the business of anointing Joshua as a priest and a king. You know, they put a crown on Joshua. The idea there was two ideas, if you will. Idea number one is it's a messianic symbol where you have unified in one man priesthood and royalty. And of course, that prefigures Yeshua. And Yeshua is, of course, the king of the world. But he also has to be a priest because it's a priest's job to represent the people to God. Prophet represents God to the people. So the direction of communication is from people to God, and that's the function of a priest. So in order for Yeshua to be able to sacrifice and represent all of humanity to God, he's got to be a priest. And of course, you know, we went through the business of him being a priest with the order of Melchizedek. The other symbol going on there with the anointing of Joshua as both priest and king is the fact that Zerubbabel is not crowned as king. He's a member of the tribe of Judah. He's a descendant, I think, of David. I didn't check that, but he is certainly, by tribal descent, qualified to be a king. So if in this vision he were crowned, what that would do would make him a messianic figure. The idea that he's been crowned as king in the spiritual world, if you will, in a vision would indicate that he is the anointed one, and he's not. So you have sort of two things going on there with the coronation of Joshua. One is the absence of coronation of Zerubbabel, and then the coming together of priest and king in one man. So anyway, we're all the way down to verse two. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sharazar and Ragamelech And their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? And I think we closed last time by mentioning that the names of these two guys who are coming from Bethel, which is a Jewish city, are not traditional Hebrew names. So they're probably returnees from the exile who may have been born in Babylon and hence got Babylonian names. Sort of like Jews today, depending on whether they're observant and orthodox or not, if they're not observant and orthodox, they'll just get a name, Robert or Charles or something like that and nobody thinks anything of it. If they are Orthodox, they will have a Hebrew name, and then they will have another name that they go by in the diaspora. So anyway, the fact that these two guys have got non-Hebrew names is interesting, but that's probably what happened. And so what they're inquiring is the fast of the fifth month. Now, the fast of the fifth month, as most of you know, is the 9th of Av, the date when the temple and Jerusalem were destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, and you all have been around long enough that you know the sequence of events, if you will, that has happened over history to the Jews on the 9th of Av. It's the day when the first temple was destroyed. It's also the day when the second temple was destroyed by the Romans. It's the day when the final solution was instigated in Germany. It's the day when England expelled the Jews from the country. It's the day when World War One started. And by the way, another thing that's kind of interesting, it's also the day when Ariel Sharon cleaned out Gush I don't know how many years ago it was, but they decided they were going to give Gush back to the Palestinians. Gush was a thriving Jewish community with lots of high-tech greenhouses and all sorts of high-tech infrastructure. And Ariel Sharon decided as a goodwill gesture he was going to take the Jews out of there and give them back to the Palestinians. Very carefully avoided doing it on the ninth of Av. However, he did not do it on the ninth of Av according to the rabbinic calendar. And of course, the rabbinic calendar is calculated since the days of Babylon, and is a mechanical calendar that goes by astronomical calculations. Biblically, the new moon, sighted in Jerusalem, is the mark of the start of the month. By that measure, it was on the ninth of Av. So anyway, that's what they're inquiring about, the fast of the ninth of Av. And they have been doing it now for 70 years because, and by the way, there is speculation and certainly in rabbinic circles it is regarded as true that the sin of the spies also happened on the ninth of Av. So it goes back even farther. In fact, there's a period from, I've forgotten what day in Tammuz, to the ninth of Av that's called the Straits of Tammuz. And... The beginning of that is when Nebuchadnezzar breached the gates in Jerusalem. And the end of it, of course, is when he destroyed everything on the ninth of all. So these people are coming and saying, all right, now we have started to come back. Do we still observe the fast? That's the question. They're not going to get an answer right away, by the way. So all the way down to verse four now. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned on the fifth month and on the seventh month, for those 70 years, was it to me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? And by the way, the fast of the seventh month is not Yom Kippur, which is also in the seventh month. What we're talking about here is the fast of Gedaliah, who was the... Jewish governor, who was left in place by Nebuchadnezzar, his first trip. So you all know Nebuchadnezzar, of course, made two trips. Trip number one is when he conquered the place, did not destroy everything, but instead made Israel a vassal state of Babylon. And as long as they had behaved themselves, paid their tribute and all that kind of thing, everything would have been fine. But of course they rebelled, and so we had our second trip down, and that's when he destroyed everything. On his first trip, he left a man named Gedaliah in charge as governor, and some Jewish zealots assassinated him. So the fast in the seventh month that's being referred to here is the fast of Gedaliah, not Yom Kippur, which is also in the seventh month. The fast on Yom Kippur is commanded by God. So no Jew would come and ask, well, do we still do that? Because the answer to that's obvious. It's not even a question. So the fact that there's a question here indicates that it's not Yom Kippur. It's the other one, the fast of Gedaliah. And what God answers back through the prophet is, you guys aren't doing this to honor me. You're doing this because you're down in the dumps and sacks. Yom Kippur, for example, the Day of Atonement, when you are commanded to fast, you are fasting in obedience and you are honoring God and there's all sorts of things that go with that fast. These fasts are just, well, shoot, we're in exile and they destroyed our temple and we're really sad and so forth. They're not specifically fasts to God. So God says, why are you asking me this? This is your fast, this isn't my fast. That's sort of the tenor of the answer that they get. Verse 7. Were not these words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous, with her cities around her, and the south and the lowlands were inhabited? So what he's saying here is, and he'll say it some more as, as we go further, that before all this happened to you, which is to say, when Jerusalem was inhabited, when they had all their cities around, in other words, before the Babylonians came and took out all the surrounding cities and then finally came back and took out Jerusalem itself, I sent you prophets. I sent you people to tell you to get back on track. You ignored them. And it's only when everything has been taken away from you and you're sitting on your blessed assurance in Babylon that you finally... Wake up and smell the coffee. So the idea that they are fasting and sorrowful is not because of God. It's just because things are really rotten. So verse 8. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in his heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts sent by his spirit to the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. So what God's obviously saying here is, I tried to get you guys to straighten out. I told you what the problem was. I sent you prophets. You didn't listen. So when things got really, really bad, and you turned around and cried out to me, I didn't listen to you. You don't listen to me, I don't listen to you. The comment was, when God sent them prophets, they would often stone them. And they did it in self-righteousness, thinking that they were doing the right thing. And the answer to that is not entirely and not often. So if you look at, for example, Jehoshaphat and Ahab, the southern king was Jehoshaphat and the northern king was Ahab. And they were going to get together and go after the Syrians in Damascus. And Jehoshaphat says, Well, probably ought to check with a prophet before they do this. Ahab had a whole stable full of tame prophets. They all gave him a prophecy that he liked. Jehoshaphat said, eh, We got one from God. And Ahab says, Well, yeah, but he never prophesies good about me, so I don't ever ask him. And the reason he doesn't prophesy good about Ahab is because Ahab was an evil king. So it is not the case that Ahab thought he was somehow being righteous. He was political and cynical and wanted this prophet out of his hair. Very much the same as uh, Ahab was with Elijah. Looking to kill him. That's what we got in mind here. We're going to kill this guy because he's a thorn in our side. And the same thing happens with Elisha under the next king, whoever that was. And the king sends these three squads of 50 soldiers. says, get down here. The king wants you right now. Well, if I have a prophet of God, fire from heaven will fall down. And fire from heaven falls down and toasts all 50 of them. Second group comes by, tries the same thing toasted. Third group comes by, and the commander crawls up there on his belly and says, oh, please, <laughs> don't be angry. Would you please come down and come talk to <laughs> So that's what's going on here in Zechariah 7, 8 through the end of the chapter. Similarly, when we get up to Yeshua, there's two things going on. Thing one is that they are looking to entrap him into saying something that they can charge him with blasphemy for. And thing two is they're looking for opportunities to arrest him and kill him. Certainly some of that is religious. So if we can get this guy to blaspheme somehow and we can kill him, then we're sort of doing it righteously, quote unquote. But we really don't care. We just need to figure out a way to kill him because this guy is stirring up the people, and what he's liable to do is cause an insurrection, which is going to mean we're going to be up to our hips and hairy Romans again, and we just can't afford that. So you have these conversations that they have among themselves, which is to say, if this guy isn't stopped, there's going to be a rebellion, and quote, we will lose our place. Very much political. Now, That's self-righteous virtue signaling. That's what most of the establishment does. They say these self-righteous things, and they say if we say the right thing, we will be counted as virtuous. We will look like virtuous people. Their hearts are not in it. You've got what I'm calling the deep state, which is the Pharisees and the clergy, if you will. They're interested in power. So what they do is they stir up the masses of people by saying this guy's a blasphemer we are the religious authority we get to say that he's a blasphemer and most people will then believe him just like most people believe cnn those who watch cnn oh yeah we got to walk around with a mask otherwise everybody's going to die i am deadly serious here it's exactly the same phenomenon so what you have is a power structure that is cynical manipulating a great many people who think that they are behaving righteously. That's what's going on here. God says, I sent you these prophets, and what did you do? You stoned them. And the people who stoned the prophets were guys like Ahab, who was a corrupt, evil, unrighteous king, who stirred people up and they wound up stoning the prophets. They whipped up a mob and wound up stoning the prophets. So God says, I sent them to you. You didn't listen to them. So when you are in deep manure and you got your hands full with all these Babylonians and you now cry out to me, save us. Well, you didn't listen to me when I told you. I'm not going to listen to you when you're asking for help. That's what the sense of the paragraph is. Long-winded, but that's what's going on there. Chapter 8, Zechariah 8. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem should be called the faithful city, And the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain, thus says the Lord of hosts. Verses 1, 2, and 3. We're talking about the jealousy of God. As most of you know, in our society, jealousy is regarded as a negative thing. It's sort of a standard thing in movies and sitcoms, where you have the jealous husband, who's always checking on his wife, the guy is always portrayed negatively as in who is he to check on his wife so jealousy is regarded as a negative emotion it is not jealousy is a protective emotion over something that belongs to you pick an example you're a shepherd and you've got a flock of 50 sheep and A wolf comes by, or even worse, a sheep rustler. You then go after him and take him out. You are being jealous for your flock. You're being protective, and you are protecting it from something that you regard as a threat. That's what the word literally means. The problem that comes around today in our society is, like many other words, it has been given a negative connotation the example i saw the other day masculine traits are now labeled as toxic courage honor bravery all those they're now labeled as toxic it's a societal thing the same thing has happened with jealousy is it is now labeled as toxic it's not so god when he says i am jealous for Israel and jealous for the land, it belongs to him. So when something is threatening something that belongs to him, he gets emotional about it and says, no, this isn't gonna happen. That's what's going on here when he says, I am jealous, is I don't want them following other gods. I don't want them subservient to foreign kings. I don't want them going off on their own and not paying any attention to me. I have a covenant with them, and very much like a marriage, which is also a covenant. It is not appropriate that one of you goes off and brings somebody else into the mix, either she or he, because what you've done is you have violated the covenant, and the one who brings somebody strange in, The other one has every right to be jealous, appropriately so. The comment was, it's difficult to understand because you don't think that God's jealousy is limited to Zion and the Jewish people. Scripturally, it is, because there's a covenant. And keep in mind, going back to Deuteronomy, when Moses presents the covenant, who are the witnesses? heaven and earth, are the witnesses to the covenant between God and Israel. And so when Israel goes into the land he says if you break the covenant the land will vomit you out. Which is to say one of the witnesses to the covenant between us will not put up with you violating the covenant. So in the sense we're talking about here yes it's limited because that's the one who God has a covenant with. Israel as witnessed by the land. Now, fast forward. One of the things that goes throughout all of Scripture, starting with the Torah and through the prophets, is the idea that at some point God is going to open up the kingdom to everybody. And that's what Yeshua accomplishes. Remember in Ephesians, so Ephesians 3, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Messiah Yeshua, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now the mystery has been known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in their generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Messiah Yeshua through the Gospel. What Paul is saying is, that mystery has now been revealed. So if you go to 1 Corinthians 2, And I, when I came among you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Yeshua Messiah and him crucified. And as I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Secret, hidden, mystery. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Here we go. Verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So the mystery is, by the crucifixion and the acceptance of the sacrifice of Yeshua, the Gentiles now become fellow heirs. If the powers and principalities that ruled the earth had understood this, they never would have crucified him. It. Because it's bad enough that we got to deal with the Jews, but now we've got to deal with all of humanity, potentially. So the mystery was hidden, And that mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. That mystery was also hidden from the powers and principalities. In other words, it was a deception operation. In a warfare, you deceive the enemy. And what God did is deceive them into thinking that if they destroyed the sun, that's the parable of the tenant farmers in the vineyard. Rich man leases a vineyard, goes off sends back for some wine, they kill all his prophets, and he says, well, I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect my son. And when the tenants see the son, they say, this is the heir. Kill him, and the vendor becomes ours. That's what's going on with the powers of the principalities. Look at Yeshua and say, this is the heir. Kill him, and the place becomes ours. What they don't understand is by that process of killing him, and sacrificing him and his blood being shed and spilled upon the altar in heaven, that allows the Gentiles to become fellow heirs. They don't understand that. So they did it, and we are. But back here in Zechariah, the one that he's jealous over is the one with whom he has a covenant, which is not Gentiles yet. So verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its street. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, in faithfulness and in righteousness. By the way, that's a statement of the new covenant. Read Jeremiah 31. I will bring them back, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid that the temple might be built. So this is talking to people who are there right now because they're in the process of building the temple. Verse 10. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast nor was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. So I set every man against his neighbor. So what's happening here is said in other ways, you sowed a lot, but you reaped very little. You put your stuff in bags with holes in it. Another way of saying the same thing. You worked, but you didn't get any wages, which is to say you didn't make any progress. You didn't get any benefit for your labor. That's what that metaphor is talking about. And I set every man against his neighbor, What I am inferring that means, this is genealogy now, is God sowed discord because they had gone astray, and what you ought to think there is Tower of Babel. So he didn't confuse their language, but what he did is he sowed discord and confusion among them so they quarreled and they couldn't get anything done. By the way, does that sound like us today? Does that sound like what's going on here? We have discord and confusion and quarreling going on so we can't get anything done. Verse 11. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. In other words, that's what I did before you went into exile. That's what drove you into exile. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their dew and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. He is talking about the remnant who is returning from Babylon. Verse 13. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel. Whoa, wait a minute. We just changed focus here. Because who went to Babylon? House of Judah. The house of Israel went into captivity with Assyria. Remember I said this is New Covenant speak? So the fact that now we have brought Israel and Judah both into this, in addition to which we're talking about New Covenant stuff, what I'm suggesting to you is we have now shifted focus from the remnant that has returned to Babylon out into the future. So verse 12 again. For there shall be a sowing of peace, the vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their dew, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. What he's saying is Jerusalem will be at peace. It will not be threatened by its neighbors. So the place will be full of children. Men and women will grow old instead of dying by the sword or by famine or by plague. So the idea that you have old men and old women in there is an indication of peace and prosperity as opposed to war, disease, and famine. Verse 14 Thus says the Lord of hosts As I purpose to bring evil to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath and I did not relent says the Lord of hosts so again I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah now notice we've gone back to the house of Judah fear not these are the things you shall do speak the truth to one another render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Does that sound like the Torah written on your heart, maybe? Don't devise evil in your hearts? 18. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah, to seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feast." Therefore, love, truth, and peace. All right, a couple of things. The fourth month is when Nebuchadnezzar breached the walls of Jerusalem. The Babylonians got into the city. The fifth month is when they destroyed the temple. The seventh month, we have already talked about, that's the fast of Gedaliah, and I've forgotten right off the top of my head what the, the tenth month is. But the point is, it all has to do with the Babylonian invasion. So the house of Judah will... Not fast on those anymore. Notice it doesn't say Israel because Israel has no knowledge or memory of those events. All of those events happened to Judah. They all happened during the Babylonian conquest. Either the first trip down or the second trip down by Nebuchadnezzar. But everything in those four fasts happened to Judah. Israel is not involved. Israel has been gone for almost 200 years at this point. They asked the question up there, and here's the answer down here. So, verse 20, Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord, and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem, and to entreat the favor of the Lord. The idea here is Jerusalem is going to be, and I regard this, by the way, as millennial kingdom stuff. Could be new heaven and new earth. But it feels like millennial stuff to me. But the point is, Israel, united Israel, is going to fulfill the function that they were supposed to have functioned with from Sinai. Remember the promise at Sinai was, if you accept this, I will make you a nation of priests. You will be my special treasure. So the idea was Israel was supposed to be God's representatives in the world. Jerusalem was supposed to be the place from which they operated. And they were supposed to go out and make disciples of all nations. That was the original charter. Didn't work. Israel goes into apostasy, gets split into two kingdoms, goes into idolatry, etc., gets scattered among the nations, and, and so forth. But when they come back, they will then have the Torah written on their heart, I believe, and they will fulfill the function to which they were originally called. Verse 23, Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days... Ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Which reminds me, by the way, every time I read that, of Isaiah chapter 4. Remember in Isaiah chapter 4 where the women of Jerusalem have gotten too big for their bustles, and God goes through and brings them down, and seven women take hold of one man. Say, marry us we'll bring our own food we'll bring our own wine it won't cost you anything but take away our reproach here it's 10 men from the nations take hold of one jew but the idea is there is somebody righteous that you can take a hold of and that righteous one can lead you in a way that will take away your shame